This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Hi, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. J. Crew. From in home sales to catalog rush order, this clothing company became a name known for peppy, preppy quality clothes. And they were no strangers to having to retailer their business strategies in the past whenever the brink loomed in the distance. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, employee dissatisfaction, waning sales, and the lack of outlets soon had J. Crew tightening its belt. Find out how a couple key people stepped in to refresh this company and keep it from falling apart at the seams, at least for a time. This is J. Crew on The Brink. Hi, everybody. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Caston. Uh, Ariel, are you a J. Crew lady? You know, I'm not. <laughs> I I am so not a J. Crew lady. No offense to the clothing, that I thought it was a men's clothing company. Right. And it turns out that's not how it even started off. Well, I also, I'm not a J. Crew lady either, uh, or a J. Crew gentleman. So uh, J. Crew, we I always thought of J. Crew as being that that again, like you said in the introduction, a, a very preppy kind of clothing line. And I have nothing against that. I mean, I grew up in the 80s when the preppy look was born, right? Mm-hmm. But I also grew up in a family with two teachers as parents. And so the, the I was, that was sort of, uh, that was a prince out of my star. I, I am in a similar, though not exactly same boat. Yeah. So uh, I, I certainly knew people who wore J. Crew because the school I went to, there were a lot of uh, upper middle class families that had students there, right? The kids were from upper middle class families. And as it turns out, that's precisely who they were marketing to. But let's let's kind of dive into the genesis, the history of J. Crew and where it came from. And then we'll we'll get to how it found itself in uh 
a tenuous set of circumstances. Sure. Well, to start, like many of the companies that we talk about, J.Crew wasn't originally J.Crew. Mm-hmm. It was called Popular Merchandise Incorporated. And Incredibly it started, snappy name. You know, it rolls off the tongue. And it was started in 1947, and they were sort of like Pampered Chef or Avon. They did in-home sales. No, kind of door-to-door salesmen. Mm-hmm. Like, well, like clothing parties, What can I do example. to get you in these pants? <laughs> I'm, I mean, listen, I'm You'd just be saying, a great J. Crew salesman. Uh, yeah, back in the 1950s, I would have been uh, the next Glengarry Glen Ross. I'm there. Yes. All right. Uh, the founders were Mitchell Sinander mm-hmm. and his cousin, Saul Charles. Yes. Uh, Senator was one of those names that I had never heard pronounced, and I'm so glad that you hunted down the pronunciation <laughs> to put it in here, because I'm sure I would have pronounced it 18 different ways, all of them wrong. So shortly after starting the company, Mitchell then ends up transitioning the control of the company to his son, Arthur. And things go pretty well. For decades. For decades. Uh, they did business, I should mention, not as Popular Merchandise, Inc., but as the popular club plan. Slightly better, I slightly guess. Slightly better, slightly better. Okay. But in 1983, after watching some of their competitors do so, they launched their first catalog. The catalog is what J. Crew is really known for. Yeah. Or was really known for for yeah. a very long time. Kind of like Sears. Like that was whenever I hear catalog, the two catalogs I think of at the top of my head are J. Crew and Sears. Mm-hmm. And they called the catalog J. Crew. Now, Jonathan, how did they get that name? Uh, well, that depends upon whom you ask. So if you ask Forbes, they picked the name Crew because it was sort of this kind of upper class concept and it could it could go toe-to-toe, like a rowing crew could go toe-to-toe with a polo team. Clever. Polo being Ralph Lauren. Yes. Yeah, you know, so if you've got the Ralph Lauren polo label, then you've got to have something that that is uh, marketed toward that same hoity-toity crowd. And, well, they've got the horsies and the hammers all taken care of. Let's go with boats. Sure. Uh, As for the J, Forbes says it was to make it sound more distinguished. However, the Washington Post has a slightly different take, not completely different, and said that Arthur took the name Crew because he was inspired by Ivy League rowing teams. So similar. Yeah. And he was thinking, these are the people I want to target with my clothing line, people who are from fairly affluent families. Yeah, basically he was trying to take Ralph Lauren's clientele yeah. and win them over with well-made clothing at a slightly cheaper price point. Right. And, oh, and he liked the J because he liked the way it looked on paper in well, front of the word crew. If you're selling your clothes through a catalog, I suppose that is a really important thing. Yeah, but there's no Joshua Crew that it's named after or no. anything like that. No, And... Interestingly enough, this first catalog they made, they did all of it in-house. So selecting the photos, writing the content, all of that. Instead of hiring an agency, Arthur hired his daughter, Emily, to help do it, and she became the chief designer. And Emily would end up being instrumental over the course of the next several years of J. Crew. So Arthur and Emily effectively ruled J. Crew. And we'll get into some of the stories about let's say, Arthur's peculiar managerial style. So in this catalog, they decide they're going to focus on young, preppy, attractive people. Yeah. It's just who they want to sell to, right? Exactly. They're, they're like, we want the people who fall into this sort of tax bracket to think, I want to be attractive and preppy. This is the place for me to go. 
But they did something really, really cool, in mm-hmm. my opinion, which is they took the same piece of clothing and showed it on multiple people. So you mm-hmm. could get a, a good idea of how this piece of clothing would look on various body types or skin tones or whatnot. Yeah, and uh, they became known for having consistent sizes, which sounds like, all right, so I'm a dude who, like, I walk in and I buy a medium shirt and I yeah, walk out. But I know, I you. first of all, first of all, I know not all medium shirts are alike. I can buy two medium T-shirts and medium for one company is not medium for another company. And one shirt, it might be like, well, need to lose five more pounds. And the other shirt might be, huh, I got lost in here. So the nice thing about J. Crew was that they had this reputation that they were very consistent. So if you knew that a medium was your size, you could be pretty darn sure that if you were to buy a totally different article of clothing that also was a medium, it was still going to fit you. And that was a big deal. It was something that was not common. It really comes down to cost. So if you go to Old Navy, for instance, and mm. I, I go to Old Navy all the time, so this is this is no dig in any way, but if you try on one pair of size 12 pants, it might be too small. Mm-hmm. If you try another size 12 pants, it might fit right. And if you find it, try another, it might be slightly too large. And that's because cheaper clothing companies will stack their material all on top of each other and then use a metal die to cut it. Mm-hmm. So as it goes down through the layers of the fabric, it spreads out. Mm. So the top pieces of fabric are literally smaller than the bottom pieces of fabric. And it would be weird to walk in and say, I need one from the middle of the stack. Yeah, they don't even... It's, you know, it's not like it's labeled or anything. Yeah, I'm sure they don't track that. So this means that J. Crew is probably having to produce their clothing in smaller batches. Sure, yeah, no, it makes sense. And uh, they also not just uh, focused on making sure those those sizes were consistent. They wanted to make sure the materials they were using were of a reputable quality. Mm -hmm. So they weren't going to skimp on the materials. They wanted to feature that so much that they actually put pictures of close-ups of the material in their catalogs Mm. so people could see the quality. Now, they released 14 catalogs that were about 100 pages each throughout the year. Not 14 total, like, I'm sending it to 14 people, but but 14 14 14 different different issues. So, like, more than one a month. Yes. Wow. Well, you probably have your Easter catalog or your sure. Christmas catalog yeah, or your Arbor your, Day catalog. It's just to me, it's amazing because you would think like, I, I know people who are very fashion conscious. Uh, I'm sitting across from one. Meh. And uh, I, know, I know that there are different, I know in theory, there are different clothings for different seasons. I am not a fashion conscious person. So I learned a lot just by reading over some of the stuff that you've, uh, incorporated into these notes. Listen, I am going to seriously Marie Kondo my closet soon, so I'll have three <laughs> shirts. It'll be fabulous. Well, J. Crew was middle upper priced clothing, mm. less expensive than Ralph Lauren, which was rather expensive, right. but still more expensive than like your generic brands and yeah. some of your, you know, some of the stuff that would come later. Like you mentioned Old Navy that would kind of spun mm-hmm. off from the gap. Uh, yes. And those, those were a little further down the road. Yes. But in 1985, the company launched a second women's line called Clifford and Wills. And this was cheaper clothing. All right. So the, the, more for a, a budget kind of approach yes. as opposed to uh, let's have investment pieces almost. Which expands our market because someone who's buying Clifford and Wells is not necessarily going to invest in a J. Crew piece. Yeah. 
So in 86, Emily, Arthur's daughter, becomes president of J. Crew. Arthur, of course, was still on board too, mm -hmm. but now she's named president, not chief designer. And their catalogs by 1988 had over tripled their sales. Oh, wow. And just in five years. Mm -hmm. So pretty incredible. It shows that this was a, a working market strategy at the time. Yeah, I mean, L.L. Bean was doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, there were others, but L.L. Bean is the one that is coming to mind at this moment. Sure, yeah. That was one of their big competitors, too. Yes. And by 1988, they were up to $100 million mm -hmm. in revenue. But that same year, their catalog sales did start losing steam. So they hit this peak and then slowly started to... Yeah, this was a Dive down. this was something that was common not just to J Crew, but this was like a an industry thing, not a company specific thing, because you started to see a shift in consumer behavior and more of a focus at this point on brick and mortar stores about mm -hmm. going to places to actually see the clothing in person, try it on in a little closed off room, a dressing room, and then make sure it looks good on you before committing to it. So this was not unique to J Crew. No. But J. Crew did jump on board with the brick and mortar, and they opened their first one in 1989. Mm -hmm. This is right about the time that rumors were starting to arise that they might be selling because their catalog sales were starting to decline. Yeah. And they said, nope, we're going to open some brick and mortars. Yeah, let's jump on that before it becomes a critical problem. Yes. And sadly, they didn't jump on it enough, which is part of the problem, or quick enough. Yeah. Well, their first store they opened is in Manhattan, which is like, it's a very a prestigious kind of place to open. It I mean, is. New York is a is a fashion center. Uh, Manhattan is the the business center of New York City. And then you think about that as a very high profile place, but one high profile brick and mortar store, a successful business does not necessarily Well, make. they quickly followed up with Massachusetts, San Francisco, and Costa Mesa. And they had plans for a total of 45 stores. Okay. But they were just slow at rolling them out. And then they had ads linking the catalog to the locations, which to me is surprising because 60% of the clothes they sold in the retail stores were not in the catalog. Mm. So you didn't have necessarily one-to-one -one crossover between catalog and store inventory. No, I think it was – they were different divisions, and I think it was to help them not compete with themselves. Now, to head up these stores, they actually looked outside their company for somebody who had some expertise in the area. Yes, Arnold Cohen of Gucci. Well, la-di-da. La-di-da. Yeah, so by the end of that year, when they're starting to, to do this, uh, they were making $10 million in retail sales and uh, – $320 million overall. Mm -hmm. So that was still a small portion of their overall revenue. But then again, they were just getting started with brick and mortar at that point. Yes. Now, by the end of 89, it still wasn't going as well as they wanted. They felt they were starting to reach market saturation for their target demographic. Mm -hmm. So you can add all of the stores and all the catalogs and all of, all of the new clothing that you want. But if you're only selling to, let's say, 50 people, those 50 people are going to buy their shirts and stop. Right. Yeah, you, you hit market penetration, and then people say, like, yeah, until this wears out, I don't need more. And it was good quality clothing. Right, and this was before they were able to really flip the switch on the concept of you need to update your wardrobe frequently. Yes. That'll come later. But they did start releasing new lines, like athletic wear and such, and providing a wider range of prices. Right, and so then you get to 1990, that they're hitting revenues of $400 million, so it's still mm -hmm. on the on the right you know, track. You're not seeing that number start to drop yet. 
But they were also running into an issue where some of their stores weren't doing so well. It yeah. wasn't like every store was going like gangbusters. And that slowed them launching their retail stores, which is a problem because if you look at Gap, Gap has a ton of outlets, mm-hmm. right? They have yeah. a ton of brick and mortars. They had J. Crew hadn't even reached 45 yet. Mm. So 91, they get a new director of marketing and they start to sell to the great white north. But only through catalogs. They didn't open a store in Canada till 2011. Mm. So they weren't learning their their physical location lesson too well. No. Like, hey, catalogs work great for the United States and we figure Canada's at least 20 years behind us. So we're good there for a while, right? <laughs> Well, that, by the way, I don't, that's not me saying that. <laughs> I love you, Canada. I love your Tim Hortons. <laughs> in 92, they hired a VP of international development to support these catalogs going to Canada and also overseas. Mm-hmm. And this person also started looking into retail operations overseas. And by 93, they had partnered with Itochu to open 46 stores in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then Arnold Cohen resigned. <laughs> Those two things are not necessarily directly connected. No, uh, but he was president of J. Crew by that time. Yeah. So this leads us up to an era in J. Crew's history where things start to get a little shaky. I mean, they had already been a little shaky. Yeah, they get a little more shaky. Yes. The ground gets more uncertain beneath the feet of the cruisers. We get to— a- <laughs> I was trying to think of what would I call people like who Tom. are the, the Tom Cruisers and Jay Cruisers. Yeah. I was just trying and to figure out what, Bob the, what do I call a person who works in J. Crew? They're, they're getting to a point where when someone finally did come in and correct their course, people were saying it was a great turnaround. Yeah. Well, we will get to that in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Snakes. Zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. 
We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. All right, we're in the early 90s, you know, we got like things to really enjoy, like Jurassic Park. Ooh. But in 94, something that J. Crew was not enjoying was that the cost of mailing stuff was on the rise. You yeah. know, the U.S. Post Office was raising prices for postage, which meant that sending out catalogs was getting more expensive. Mm-hmm. And it meant that you were having to try and recapture that cost. And it just meant that selling by catalog was getting less and less effective. It was not only bringing in fewer sales over time, it was getting more expensive to do. Yes. So this was a turning point for J. Crew. Yes. So they made another retail push, this time headed by David DeMatti. Mm-hmm. Where did he come from? Banana Republic. The store or like the place? I'm guessing the store. Okay, that's fair. And... They did this push despite having just a fraction of the stores their competitors did, as as we said before the break. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at this point, Robert Bernard becomes the president of the company. And in 96, they're still at around 40 retail stores in the United States. They were having issues with retaining employees, including... President Robert Bernard? <laughs> yeah, apparently Emily and Arthur were rumored as being hard to work with. And I have a couple of anecdotes about that. Ooh. One story said that Arthur once received an employee's report and he sent it back because the staple was crooked by comparison with the edge of the paper. Goodness gracious, Arthur. Yeah, saying that I don't, if the staple isn't right, I don't trust anything in this report. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another story was that he walked into a meeting and immediately walked out again because an employee had used the abbreviation SP to stand for spring, and Arthur preferred the abbreviation SPR. And he was like, this is unacceptable, and he left. This is the kind of job where you constantly walk around with a notepad just to make sure that you're keeping your P's and Q's in order. Yeah, so he ends up taking over the company again at least temporarily. So he he assumes the role of president. That'll fix the problem. <laughs> uh, well, it didn't actually. In 1997, Texas Pacific Group Incorporated, which was an investment firm, gained majority stake in J. Crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, at that point, they had just been really owned by the Senator family. Yes, and it was a part of a leverage buyout for $560 million. Yeah, and this is... The actual amount and the amount of ownership ends up being reported widely in different numbers, but it mm-hmm. tends to be somewhere between 500 and $570 million. Mm-hmm. And the ownership tends to be quoted anywhere from as low as 80% up to 88%. Mm-hmm. Uh, why this is so hard to report on remains a mystery to us. Yeah, I don't know. Something that was pretty consistent in reporting is that the buyout increased J. Crew's debt a lot by yeah. about $200 million. Yikes, yeah. And the company's earnings were such that it wasn't going to cancel out that debt mm-hmm. anytime in the near future. So there was there needed to be a specific strategy in place, right? You're, you mm-hmm. just spent this huge amount of money on this company you know that the company's sales are not going to erase that debt 
in the short term. What is your plan? Uh, you plan to take the company public. Oh, boy, howdy. Yay. We've had so many discussions about private versus public companies. This is going to be another one. Yes. Sadly, though, about the time this sale happened, their catalog sales dropped $30 million mm-hmm. and their operating costs went up mm-hmm. due to a postal strike. Yep. 12% drop in sales for the fall that year. And that was a huge problem because when I think J. Crew, one of the things I tend to think about are things like sweaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just one of those things that always popped into my head at the time. And as it turns out, the fall was by far the season that J. Crew depended upon the most yeah. for their sales. It like accounted two-thirds. for yeah. Yeah. So so more than half of all their sales were traditionally in the fall. So seeing a drop in their most popular and their most uh, important crucial season, mm-hmm. not good news. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, some other companies that TPG invested in around this time, just so you can kind of get a idea for how varied this investment firm was, included Del Monte Foods, Behringer Wine, and Ducati Motorcycles. Ooh, uh, Do not ride a Ducati motorcycle if you've been drinking Behringer Wine. Yes, probably don't eat a Del Monte fruit cup at the same time either. (laughs) Eating a Del Monte fruit cup while you're traveling 90 miles per hour on a Ducati is a bad idea. In 1998, due to all of these mishaps, they started selling off their properties. So Mm. they sold off Popular Club Plan. Which still was a thing. Which still apparently was a thing. They sold it to Finger Hut. And they started looking for a buyer for Clifford and Wills. Yeah, that that bargain. uh, Ladies. Ladies line. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was actually a real sign that something like they were hitting some desperate measures because that the the Clifford and Wills brand wasn't suffering Mm-mm. like J. Crew was. It actually had been doing quite well. It it had. They had grown fifty percent in nineteen ninety seven, but J. Crew said, "No, we're not selling this. Yeah, because we're in trouble. We just really want to focus on our brand, on the J. Crew specific brand." Yep. So then we get uh, someone who came from a company that we had mentioned in a previous episode about uh, Macy's, actually. So Howard Sokol comes in and becomes CEO, and he had originally uh, been working at Federated Department Stores. And mm-hmm. like we said, that that was an important component in our Macy's episode. Yes, and he had the fun job of laying off 100 employees. Uh, and... He didn't last too long either. So this story of J. Crew is also a story of a revolving door at top-level management. You see a lot of people changing over that's over a, short time. That's a problem with a lot of companies, though. Yeah. So he resigns in 99, and apparently it's that old story of having issues with people who are still having major ownership of the company. Not majority of the ownership, but a a—, a, a Sizable stake in the company, in this case, Emily. Yep. Well, he steps down. Mark Sarvery comes in. From Nestle. From Nestle. Mm -hmm. So from food to clothing. Yep. And they start trying a new marketing approach too, which is television commercials. But that's expensive. That's expensive. Yeah, in the short term, that actually just made it harder because it increased the costs. Yes. Now, by 2000. Texas Pacific only owned around 60% of the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, As the a, managers had about 10%. Mm-hmm. And then Arthur and Emily had the rest. Yep. So they were still very much involved in this. Uh, they did 
end up selling the Clifford and Wills brand off mm-hmm. to uh, Spiegel. You said that so beautifully, yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, it's my uh, every German listener out there is wishing I would not say that <laughs> ever again. Now they did do a smart thing. They were up to eighty-two stores by this time. Yeah, so they were really investing in opening up those brick and mortar yes. locations. Yes, including some J. Crew factory outlets. So what happens in two thousand two? Well. They get another CEO. (laughs) So many in so little time. Yes. They had three CEOs between 98 and 2003. Mm. So Mark Sarvery is out. Who's in? Ken Pilot. How long? Four months. Yikes. Yes. Yeah. So as you can see, it's very hard to for any company to succeed if you have so many quick changes in leadership. Mm-hmm. And I mean, th- this is not a deep insight. This is common sense, right? Yeah. If you are constantly changing captains of the ship, you can't expect the boat to stay on course. It's going to start wandering around. You're going to have different approaches to leadership, different ideas of what needs to be focused on versus what needs to be dropped. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you have everyone working for the company. One, they don't know if they're going to have a job the next day. Two, they have no idea where the company is going because their boss keeps changing every few months. So you can imagine this was a really rough time at J. Crew. In fact, you might even say the company was on the brink. So how did they get back? We'll find out in just a minute. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand, when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward, don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 1067 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. So in 2003, things started looking up. Yeah, yeah. Can, can, can I tell you how? Sure. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Mickey. Hey, trademark. Oh, okay. You're right. I can't sing on this. I can't sing either. You can sing all. just fine, Jonathan. That's okay. I was about to sing the Mickey Mouse Club anthem. All right. That's fair. So by Mickey, we are talking about a specific person. and His name is? Millard Drexler. Yeah. The Merchant Prince. Ooh. Yeah, he was previously the CEO of Gap. Now, this takes a quick tangent to explain a problem that happened at Gap. And it's important because we're going to see some parallels mm-hmm. when we talk a little bit more about J. Cruz. So he had been at Gap for 20 years. In 2002, he quote unquote resigned from Gap. But it was the kind of resigned we often see at the CEO level where a board of directors says, yo, you got to resign. <laughs> like, yeah. Essentially, 
you're fired, but we're going to let you say I'm resigning despite, type of approach. Yeah, despite his 20 years, well, I guess 18 years of success in growing Gap and making it successful. Yeah. They had two straight years of declining sales and yeah. they said, nope. Yeah, that was the problem was that he had received a lot of credit for making the Gap brand grow at an explosive rate for the greater part of his leadership period there. But after two years of these sales figures slipping, which he argued weren't entirely the fault of leadership or the company's overall performance or direction, he was told to go. And then he said later on that he felt vindicated when a month after he left, the sales figures started to turn around. And his argument was, that's far too early for you to credit that to a new leader. It indicates that it was more of a market thing, not a company thing. And if I had just stayed there, you would have seen things had turned around in either case. But there's no way to tell if that's actually true. Hindsight is twenty twenty, et cetera, et cetera. Yoda and Mr. Miyagi. Moving yes. on. So Mickey invests $10 million into J. Crew for a partial stake of the company, mm-hmm. which according to The New Yorker, by the time J. Crew went public in 2006, his share was worth $136 million. That's a pretty nice investment mm-hmm. to go from 10 to 136 In three years. Uh, and he also started to get a reputation for being able to suss out which designs, which clothing items were going to perform well in the market. And he got a lot of credit for being able to have like this, this really keen eye for things. Mm-hmm. He was not himself necessarily known for being super high fashion. No, uh, he didn't like wearing suits. Yeah, but he he recognized what was going to be popular, and he was very good at uh, guiding that. And honestly, he had even had a background before he worked at Gap doing this sort of thing because he started off really as a buyer at another department store. Yeah, at Bloomingdale's. Now— That wasn't his first job, but that's really when he got into the clothing market. Yeah. And he stayed hands-on through his entire time at J. Crew. He wasn't the only person picking merchandise, but he was very involved in it. Yeah, and he also picked somebody else who really shaped the look of J. Crew Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Uh, Initially for better. Yes. And Uh, that would be Jenna Lyons. Now, she had been at J. Crew since 1990, Mm -hmm. and she was in the design department for menswear. Yeah, she was actually hired by Emily Senator herself. I read an interview where it talked about uh, her, you know, when she walked in and she met with Emily. In fact, both Emily and Arthur were known for taking a very hands-on approach, something that Mickey would continue into uh, the management style for looking at people to bring on to the team. Yes. So she became creative director, mm-hmm. and they just updated J. Crew's image and the products and the company and were very successful in doing so until about 2013 or so. Yeah, she was uh, given a ton of creative control. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what she said goes. Like, yeah. if she liked something, it could be on the line. If she didn't like something, it got struck. Other things they did to improve the company were, like, focusing on improving service taking customer feedback on their items seriously. If something didn't fit mm-hmm. across the board mm-hmm. the same way, they would take that seriously. If a customer said this size 14 is not the same as this size 14, yeah, they, that was big. Yeah, they made, they made sure that they addressed these things and didn't just ignore them or dismiss them. Yes. And they started sourcing materials globally through craftsmen and mills and working with other brands. Yep. 
uh, they began to add new lines to their various lines of, of uh, clothing, and they started creating things like the kids' line, the bridal line, mm-hmm. uh, limited edition stuff. And, and you're starting to probably catch on to this. These are t- trending toward higher-end, more expensive, yes. almost almost luxury items. In fact, some would argue in some cases they certainly fall into that category. They, in fact, started luxury lines. Yeah. And they also bought the Madewell name. Mm-hmm. So they didn't buy the company Madewell. Madewell was a company that made work clothes mm-hmm. in the 30s, like denim yeah. type stuff. And they had not been in operation for a while, but Mickey kind of took the the initiative to just buy that name up to yeah. use for future use. And now there's a, a Madewell store in the... The very building that we're recording this in. Yes, there is. We're not recording it in a Madewell. That would be awkward. Yes. And they did, I don't know, I want to try on some jeans now. (laughs) Well, we can do that after the show. They did expand to more forms of advertising, but they still use the catalog as their main source of marketing. Mm -hmm. They spent about 40 to $50 million a year on the catalog. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, They started also having to deal with a problem that was hitting the entire nation, which was that you start getting into the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it becomes increasingly difficult to market these higher-end luxury products to a a smaller number of people who can afford to do it or feel like they can afford to do it in the wake of a recession. Yeah, so they launch Madewell. Yeah, and they start dropping prices. And... uh, and they end up going public the first day of public trading. Their stock value increased by 28%, which is certainly a number that you want to see. Yeah. You want to see, you want to see that positive number there. And TPG would sell off most of their stake in the company at that point, uh, thus fulfilling its purpose of being an investment firm. That was also when Emily Senator Scott, she had been on the board of directors since 1992. It was around this time that she resigned from the board. Actually, she and her husband both resigned in 2006, her husband being Thomas Scott. A third director, Bridget Ryan Berman, also resigned that day. Mm-hmm. And the stories about the resignation, because I, I wanted to look into this. I was thinking, well, what, what was going on? interesting, because I mean, the daughter of... Not the founder, well, really the granddaughter of the founder of the company. Why did she resign from the board? The only thing I could find were personal reasons. Intriguing. Hmm. Well, in 2008, Jenna Lyons becomes the executive director of J. Crew. Mm-hmm. She's done so well at shaping it. Yep. And a fun fact. Yep. Michelle Obama wears J. Crew on The Tonight Show. So the Obamas wear J. Crew. Yeah, when the presidential family is wearing your brand, that's pretty good marketing. Yeah, on, on multiple occasions they've done this, and it's helped the brand. Yeah, and this is when uh, Lyons sometimes starts to get criticism for some of her decisions because she really was molding the line after her own personal sense of style, which was very, uh, you know, it had a very strong aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that the vision was bad, but rather that she was pushing high-end fashion during a recession. Like when you're trying to sell an $800 skirt or a $1,900 sweater and the country is in an economic recession, a lot of people would say that that's probably not a great business strategy. 
Maybe not, but in 2009, revenues had increased by 107% from when Mickey Drexler first joined. Yeah. Yep. They're worth $1.57 billion. Yes, and they started opening specialty stores, like men's specific clothing stores. Yes, instead of men's general clothing stores. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then in 2010, Drexler names Lyons the president of J. Crew, so, Up from executive director. Yep, so she's continuing her climb. And then um, there was also something else going on at 2010, and this is one of the elements of our story that raised a lot of eyebrows. Yeah, apparently Mickey Drexler was looking at doing a leverage buyout for J. Crew to make it a private company again. Mm-hmm. And he did this by gathering bids to buy it from Texas Pacific Group, but he didn't tell the board of directors. Yeah, which uh, typically you would keep the board of directors informed Mm -hmm. about this stuff and get their consent unless you're doing like a hostile takeover. And he's working from inside the company. It's not like someone from outside the company coming in to try and take over. And it also means that the shareholders are upset because they have less say in their share prices. Mm -hmm. And they did agree eventually on $43.50 per share, but investors were kind of telling them that wasn't a— a great deal. They were they undervaluing like that, it. Yeah, they felt that they could have asked for a higher mm-hmm. per share price for the buyout. But the buyout happens. It's worth around $3 billion. And Mickey came away with around $200 million in cash. Yeah. And 8.8% of the new company. You know, when you walk away from a deal with $200 million in cash, there are some questions about how carefully you negotiated on behalf of the rest of the company. Yeah. Uh, but 2010, J. Crew also makes it into Fashion Week, which is a great prestige moment for the company. Yes, certainly. And in 2011, as we said, they opened their first international store in Canada. So now they, they have more than just uh, catalogs. And the buyout is finished. Mm-hmm. And in, then in 2012, they started offering their product globally. So not just Canada to over 100 companies, but through online shopping. Yep. And then between 2012 and 2016, the number of stores they have almost doubles. So we're seeing them really invest in opening up these physical stores. That, by the way, is not just J. Crew stores. It also includes the Madewell stores mm-hmm. um, and uh, J. Crew Factory as well. And this is all in an effort to widen their customer base so it's not just the preppy kids with all the cash. Yes. In 2014, getting closer to current day, mm-hmm. Things started looking bad again. Mm -hmm. They reported a loss of $607.8 million. That's more than a little bad. Yes, and their previous net had been $35.4 million. So they report a loss of more than half a billion dollars. And their higher-end clothing is, is causing a rift with their core customers. Yeah, here's a great... Story. It's one that if you followed along on, uh, you know, if you paid attention at the time, you may have even seen this because it went viral. In 2015, an illustrator named Trisha Luvar penned an open letter on a website, uh, The Hairpin, and the open letter was addressed to Jenna Lyons. It was an illustrated open letter, and it criticized Lyons' focus on expensive clothing. Uh, she had said that J. Crew had completely lost track of what its core customer base wanted and could afford, saying, yeah, your clothing lines are pretty, but your average person where I live isn't going to spend $1,400 on a pair of shoes. 
The criticism ends up going viral, and others would back up what Luvar had said. Mark Cohen of the Columbia Business School concluded that Lyons had been pushing her own style long after customers had grown tired of that aesthetic, and he said the J. Crew customers had been rejecting the brand as a result over the course of years. Yes. In 2016, they had a net loss of $1.24 billion, and in 2017, a net loss of $2.35 billion. Yikes. That is astronomical. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? Well, they say, no weddings for you. Yes, they discontinue (laughs) their bridal line in 2016. And Drexler takes a note from Jeff Bezos's book and tells customers that they can email him directly. Yeah, and he he hands out his own email address. Mm -hmm. Whether or not he had one made specifically for the complaints department, I don't know. But he definitely gave people the email address to get in touch with him. Yes. Now, J. Crew's women wear was not doing well at this time, but Madewell was doing well, which just further drives home the point that they were charging too much for J. Crew. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see Lyons and Drexler both make an exit from J. Crew in 2017. This was a big deal. It was also around the same time that there was a possible chance for J. Crew items to be carried in Amazon's online mm-hmm. store, but that was a deal that Drexler ultimately decided to walk away from. Not that it mattered in the long run. No, he thought it would water down the brand, but he stepped out and James Brett stepped in in 2018 and he decided to accept the Amazon deal. Yeah, no. Drexler, while he had stepped away as CEO, he was still chairman of the board, Mm -hmm. and he would remain chairman of the board for about a year more. This is where we start seeing another big drastic cutback at the company. They terminated 250 jobs, including 150 full-time positions and 100 open positions. Drexler said in a very revealing interview with the Wall Street Journal, uh, here's a direct quote, We became a little too elitist in our attitude. We gave a perception of being a higher-priced company than we were in our catalog, online, and in our general presentation. Very big mistake. And J. Crew pulls out of Fashion Week. And in 2017, a little tiny bit of a backtrack, Arthur Senator passed away at age 90. So unlike the owner of Toys R Us, who was... Unaware when his company hit the decline. Yeah, Senator had lived to see this. Uh, yeah, but he he obviously had not had a direct hand in mm-hmm. J. Crew for many years at that point. Yeah. Now James Brett stepped down from CEO after just a year. Mm-hmm. And common story with J. Yeah. Crew at this point. Yeah, and J. Crew is kind of back on the lists of companies that might go bankrupt real soon. Yeah. So again, you might say that it was on the brink, it came back from the brink, and now it's on the brink again. And you could argue that, again, like I said, with Drexler and his experience with Gap, that you might have seen a similar case with J. Crew, where you have this initial booming period where things are going really well, and it seems like the company's turned around, and then things start to fall apart. And I've seen a lot of criticism aimed at Drexler saying that He's very good at certain parts of his job, but other very key components of being a leader are things that he may fall short on. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm qualified to make that kind of judgment myself, but I've certainly seen some of those criticisms, and it is interesting. Uh, they also had some bad press Mm-hmm. Over the last few months, like on Black Friday, their website crashed, and that was really bad news. 
Uh, it was down for several hours, and analysts said they estimated that it cost the company something like $775,000 in sales just from being down for a few hours. Um, That's not great. That's not. So we do have some fun facts about J.Crew after leaving it on this kind of dire note. Yeah. Uh, One of them is that Drexler really liked to have this open dialogue with his employees, so much so that he set up a loudspeaker in the J. Crew headquarters. Yes, that everybody could hear with so he could communicate directly. He could even call in from his cell phone. Yeah, and his assistant would patch him through. Thoughts, answer your emails, hey, we're getting this new item. Did you know that the Pantone color of the year is purple? <laughs> uh, I had Chinese for lunch. And, you know. <laughs> and uh, Drexler's from uh, the Bronx, so he has a distinct accent that people said uh, was very entertaining to hear over the loudspeaker. He was also so picky about who he worked with that he interviewed every potential J. Crew employee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I said, very hands-on, just like Arthur and Emily were known to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, and um, here's a fun bit of trivia to close out this episode. He was also in an episode of Breaking Bad Ooh. back in uh, the the fifth season, the, the final season of Breaking Bad. He was in an episode called Confessions. Um, and he plays a customer of the car wash. I'm going to have to go back and watch that episode. Apparently, I think he has one line and he said it took nine takes to get it right. It's 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 tough, man. It is. I mean, it's a hard gig, right? It is. Like, like leading a billion dollar company, that's that's peanuts compared to TV, baby. Listen, those one liners are the worst. Yeah. Well, that wraps up our conversation about J. Crew and uh Again, a very interesting story. I didn't know most of this before we did this episode. Me neither. I certainly didn't know about the merry-go-round of executives at J. Crew. So I don't know that there are any lessons we can pull from this other than, again, like stable leadership is uh, mm-hmm. so important. I mean, it's, it's so basic an idea, it feels silly to even say it. Because obviously that's the case, right? You can't. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter who your leader is. We'll do just fine. That That is clearly not the case. Um, so will J. Crew still be around for us to do a follow-up episode in the future? That remains to be seen. But uh, I, you know, I never want to see a business just collapse and go away. I know that people's livelihoods depend upon it. And the J. Crew line has a long storied history of innovation and fashion design. And quality. And quality. So you don't want to see that go away either, even if... I, the schlub that I am, am not likely to wear J. Crew. You know, I might go try on a J. Crew sweater. Yeah, just for the heck of it. I'm, I might, I might troll through the thrift stores and see if there's any J. Crew sweaters. <laughs> All right, well that wraps this up. Where can they reach us? Well, if you have comments about the show, you want to tell us that you love us, or you have suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. Yes, or you can visit our website. That's thebrinkpodcast.show. That has all the archived episodes there and information about us. And uh, in case you forgot who we are, I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Kasten. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. 
But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand, when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.